Well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Last week, we took a look at a portion of chapter 1, and I felt since we're already in this dynamic book, I'd like to look at select passages from the book over the next couple of weeks with you. Today, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2. And last week, as we emphasized the incredible blessings that we have been blessed with in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. Today, we're going to remind ourselves why we are able to receive those blessings that Christ has provided for us. And it's solely upon His grace. I don't think the love of God and the grace of God can be emphasized enough. I think that we need to be reminded of these things day in and day out as Christians as we walk through this world. So in doing so, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to come he might show his exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think it is appropriate to say that the grace of God has removed the grave clothes that we were born within and has robed us with the glory of His salvation. Only through grace is this possible. Our salvation apart from grace would be impossible. As we move through this chapter this morning, or this portion of the chapter this morning, we're going to find three distinct things. Number one, we're going to discover that before we came to Jesus Christ, we were dead. And there's no way of romanticizing that in any way, shape, or form. We were dead, separated from God. But then the second thing we're going to realize, contained in two very unique and powerful words, in, in verse 4, but God. If it weren't for God, we would remain in that spiritual position of death for all eternity. And lastly, we are going to discover that not only was this salvation provided for us through the grace of God, it also has provided for us for a purpose. That you and I were created and given salvation and the new birth was given that we may go on then to do the good works that God has architect from the foundations of the world. Incredible truths that we'll be diving into this morning. All of it possible because we are in 
Christ Jesus. When we come and we worship together as a community, when we ask God to inhabit the praises of His people, we do so knowing that all that we have has been provided for us in Jesus Christ. And for no other reason, that alone is always reason to rejoice. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we are personally experiencing, in Jesus we have overcome. The grace of God is one of the most unique attributes of His character. And as we dive into this this morning, again, as I stated last week, Ephesians gives us some of the most rich elements of New Testament doctrine. We, like I like to say, are diving into the deep end of the the theological pool without floaties. We're just going for it. One of my heroes in my life was my dad. And I miss him dearly. It was hard celebrating Father's Day for the first time and knowing he was gone. But I'm so grateful that the day before he died, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to see him again. And when I get to heaven, he'll be standing there at the, the gates of heaven and saying, you're late. <laughs> and he'll still be wearing his brown shirt, his plaid shirt, and his white shoes that he used to cut the grass with. It's at that point when I see him in that way that I thank God that I was adopted. <laughs> Certain things didn't carry on. And yet somehow, someway, we still had the same hairline. I don't know. God works in mysterious ways, that is for sure. But one of the things about my dad that was always so unique was his generosity. He was a giving man. Even though he didn't know the Lord, he was always giving. And one of the things I remember distinctly about my dad that has left a real impact uh, apart from his plaid shorts in my life is when we were growing up, during the summer, of course, my dad would only run the air conditioning of our house when it was 105 degrees, you know. And it was never a dry heat. It was always a humid heat. We know all about that here in Chicago, don't we? So our windows were open constantly every summer. And you could hear every single thing that the neighbors were doing up and down the block. We heard their televisions. We heard their, you know, their music. And we heard, you know, their, their how, how would my dad put it? Their constructive interaction with one another at loud voices. They're arguing. Okay. But one of the things that we also used to hear, and that my dad, I think, uh, would even consider turning the air on for just simply so that we could close the windows, is the sound of the ice cream truck coming down the street. And it was amazing what that ice cream truck was capable of doing. As we would be inside, or even if we were scattered throughout the neighborhood, when we heard the bells of the good humor man, I'm going back now, you guys are going to have to remember those days, or the ice cream trucks that had the music blaring from the little speaker on top of their vehicles. Kids used to come from everywhere. It was just a convergence. It's like, whoomp. And we would all stand there. Now, none of us ever had any money. We were hoping for just pity cream, you know, pity ice cream. You know, just a little taste of something would be appreciated. It's so hot and my dad won't turn on the air conditioners. Feel sorry for us, you know. 
But do you know how often my dad would get out of, come out of the house or stop doing what he was doing in the garage? And he would see my friends and I all around the ice cream truck, and he would just look at us and say, you don't have any money, do you? Nope, because you don't give me an allowance. This is your fault. <laughs> my dad would always buy for everyone who was standing there. Every single time. He didn't have to. He wasn't obligated to. But he always did because of his generosity, because of the grace that he showed myself and my friends. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves in a very small, unique way. Each and every one of us here today is saved by the grace of God. And the grace that we have been given is unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We weren't special. God simply chose to show it to us. And therefore, we should have an attitude of gratitude and appreciation for all that God has done for us. And if God has showed us that type of grace, how much more grace should we show each other? If the holy God of, who created everything is giving us and showing us this type of grace in and through Christ Jesus, how much more should we show each other grace that when we fail, we don't hold a grudge towards someone else? When they fail and wrong us, we don't try to retaliate in some way. But realizing that each and every one saved by this grace is a work in progress. And that God is restoring them as individuals back to the image that He originally created mankind within. That state of perfection that we won't obtain until we again are in heaven for all eternity. All of this is possible by the grace of God. But before we can truly appreciate this grace this morning, we have to be told the bad news before the good news. This bad news creates in us an anticipation and a need and an understanding that we are in a hopeless situation unless God intervenes. And it begins, this explanation of our standing before God begins in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you. He's not speaking of anyone else, he's speaking to you. He made alive, God made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. We were spiritually dead before God saved us. Meaning that we were incapable of knowing and understanding God in His fullness. We were incapable of pleasing God with our works and meriting the favor that He would show us. We were incapable of saving ourselves. We were completely and utterly cut off from God. Because of the sin in our life. Now this is a concept that we also need to be reminded of. We are not sinners because we sin. Okay? This is where it gets technical. We sin because we are sinners. The actions that we uh, convey through our thoughts, our mouth, our, our hands, are all first and foremost derived within a person's heart. It's an outworking of a reality that is within us. The fallen nature that we have been born into. 
It is this fallen nature, this depravity, if you will, that causes us to sin. Willfully, that's what the word trespassing means. And the word sin there means that we were born into this iniquity and it is part of our fallen nature. We would like to believe that we are all good people apart from Christ, but that's not the reality that the Scriptures teach us. Oh, it's not that we can't do good things towards one another. It's not that we can't be generous. It's not that we can't be kind. It's not that we can't love. But when it comes to our interaction with God, we are dead. And we cannot please a holy God in and through a fallen nature. It's impossible to do so. And as a result, notice that because we were spiritually dead in verse 2, it continues, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. This world is certainly going in one direction, and those who are in Christ are going in another. You know, one pastor said it this way, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes one who is alive to, float, uh, to swim against the current. And that's certainly true. We see that our world is truly uh, making their way very quickly upon the broad path that ends and leads to destruction. And fewer and fewer seem to be walking the narrow way in evidence of their new faith in Jesus Christ, in their reality of the new life provided for them in and through Jesus Christ. Our world is certainly going in one direction. And now we have come to the point where our world says, unless you conform, you shall be canceled. Think about that for a moment. Any society that comes to that point is a society that is saying that they no longer can justify logically what they are doing. It is just simply do what we say. And often it's do what we say and not what we do as many of them live in complete contrary fashion to the manner in which they prescribe for everyone else to live. We as Christians are now faced with a dilemma that we haven't been faced with before in our nation, particularly in our lifetime. We will either conform to this world or will be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But if we choose to be transformed... Let us remember that Jesus Christ told us from the beginning, as they hated him, so they shall hate you, because they love their sin and they rather remain in darkness than have the light of your life shine into them and expose that darkness for what it truly is. We are living in, as one would say, very interesting times to say the least. But as these walk and as we walked at one time, according to the course of this world, let us understand that the course of this world is being directed according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan himself. We have made it clear that there are only truly two kingdoms upon this earth. Though there are many nations and many governments and many forms of government, in the eyes of God, there are truly only two kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of this world, led and ruled and reigned over by Satan himself. 
Now, many Christians today want to simply dismiss Satan as the personification of mere evil. But the Bible clearly tells us that Satan was an angel that fell due to the pride that rose within him. He was then cast down by God. A third of the angels were then uh, followed him. And he now is the ruler of this world until Christ comes and takes and claims the purchased possession in which he bought and paid for by the blood of his only begotten son on the cross. People want to believe that they are free moral agents, that they're not conforming to any type of uh, you know, standard that is being imposed upon them. But that's the great deception in and of itself. Satan doesn't care what you think as long as you don't believe in Jesus Christ and allow you to do whatever you want to do. The mandate and motto of the satanic uh, religion is this, do what thou wilt as long as you don't follow Christ. People don't want to believe that. But let me ask you a question. With all of this supposed individuality that we're supposed to be seeing in the world today, it surely looks like that this individuality is accepted as long as it conforms to everything else. Again, the deception is immense. And you and I who are in Christ are the lights shining in the darkness. We are the ones that God has here for a time such as this to be ambassadors to a fallen world. And in and through us, Christ should reflect, they should see Jesus in us and see that there is something different about us. But as these individuals walk according to the course of this world, as they are being ruled and reigned over by Satan himself, within the hearts, as Paul describes, sons of disobedience, He reminds us, among whom also all once conducted, we all once conducted ourselves. And we conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as others. We are no better than anybody else. We have simply been saved by the grace of God. Now, this being said, let us understand that Paul is reminding us of this reality so pride doesn't fill our hearts, and that we don't become self-righteous in our own minds towards those who do not know Jesus Christ. Though we see that we have been given a position of privilege, and I say that openly because we have. In Christ, I have been adopted by God the Father, and I am now a joint heir with Jesus to all that the Father has for me. But I didn't provide it for myself. I can't take credit for myself, and I certainly can't boast about it, because it was all rendered to me by the grace of God. I think that if we're going to be effective evangelists going forward, we have to remember that we too have been saved by grace. And that same grace offered to us is the same grace God is offering to others around us. And they don't need to see a self-righteousness in us. The righteousness that we display should be the righteousness that we have been clothed with in Christ. I do not believe that we are going to win the world by becoming like the world. I believe that we are going to win the world by becoming 
like Jesus. And that is simply the reality of where we are today. But the world's going to push against us. They're going to see us as those who would hinder the progress of their agenda. But where is their agenda leading? Are we truly building a utopia? Or are we simply broadening the path to destruction? We were all in this position, in this place, where we lived according to the appetites of our flesh, fulfilling those appetites. We then pursued the lusts of our minds, the things we created within our minds to allow us to hopefully find the happiness in which we are seeking and yet never finding it. The Bible clearly tells us that it's the flesh, it is the world, and it is the devil that works against us continuously trying to draw us into conformity with it. For John said, all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But notice the next two words in verse 4. This is who we were. We were dead in trespasses and sin, separated from God for all eternity. This death, of course, originated in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. It will be on the slide behind you. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall what? Surely die. And that has occurred. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, notice, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, Satan from the very beginning deceiving and twisting God's words. For God knows that in that day uh, that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Unfortunately, it did bring death. And Paul reminds us that in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin, the payment of sin, the consequences of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah reminded us of that separation even in the Old Testament when Isaiah wrote in 59.2 when he said, but your iniquities have separated you from God and, you have, and your sins, excuse me, have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. We are dead and separated from God with no hope of any type of return or reconciliation in and of ourselves. I love what Warren Wordsby said. I'd like to read it to you, if I may. The unbeliever is not sick. He is dead. He does not need resuscitation. He needs resurrection. All lost sinners are dead. And the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of their decay. That's who we were. That is the reality of our position before we became Christians. But Paul then, after introducing the bad news and reminding us of the state in which God found us, knowing that God loves us too much to leave us the way he found us, notice what Paul then writes in verse 4. The first two words. I've noticed that sometimes the smallest words of the Bible have the greatest theological impact upon my life. Notice what he says. 
remembering what we just read and who we are, that we were fulfilling the lusts and the desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature's children of wrath, the weight of God's judgment holding over our head, held over our head, just as others. Notice what the first two words, but who? Not me, but Eric, but Mike, but Nathan, but God. I love those two words. Do you notice that every single time we are in a hopeless situation, we can address that hopeless situation with these two words, but God? It changes everything when we add God to the equation. It changes our whole perspective, our whole mindset, our whole attitude. God saw us in our dead, hopeless situation and condition, but God, notice what he says here, who is number one, rich in mercy... Because of His great love, which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to come He might show His exceeding riches and grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Theologians have carefully cataloged for us what are called intrinsic characteristics of God. Meaning, this is who God is. Those uh, characteristics would be life. It would be love. It would be holiness. But those intrinsic characteristics, when shown to you and I, become relative attributes. When we understand the intrinsic characteristic or attributes of God, who He is. For example, 1 John tells us very clearly that God is love, that a love in and of itself is not merely an emotion that is stirred by the chemicals of our brain, but actually architected, designed, and given to us by God because He Himself is love. An incredible incredible fact to consider. But when that love is demonstrated towards us, when that life is demonstrated towards us, when that... that, um, Holiness is demonstrated towards us. It's demonstrated in a way that has a real practical outcome. Let me read this if I may. For example, by the nature of God, by His nature, God is truth. But when He relates to man, that, that truth becomes faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is rooted in the attribute of Him being a truthful God. God is by nature holy, but when He relates to that holiness to us, He becomes a God of justice. When it, that in, that love being, of course, a key component of the intrinsic attributes of God, when He loves us, it becomes grace. And mercy. 
It's an incredible thing to consider. And I don't believe any verse illustrates this better than John 3.16. For God so loved the world, meaning he demonstrated his love towards the world and for the world by giving his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not die but have everlasting life. God could say that he loves us and that would be truthful. But the manner in which that characteristic of his love was demonstrated for us, it was demonstrated in and through the finished work of Christ. Him sending his only begotten son. What an act of grace that was alone, right? God didn't have to do it. In fact, we have a passage in the Old Testament where God gets so frustrated with his people, he tells Moses, you know what? I'm just going to wipe everything out and I'm just going to start all over again, Moses. And Moses says, well, well, wait, wait, wait. Because God was trying to draw out of Moses that intercessory, that mediation that he wanted Moses to, the, the Moses to become. And yet, in our fallen state, He loved us, he sent us Jesus, and he invited each and every person to experience new life in him who will place their faith and trust in him. The attributes of God shown to man. The intrinsic becomes the relative, and as a result, we benefit from the attributes in which he carries. Notice that Paul says that he's rich in mercy and great in love towards us. And through his grace, he made us alive. Not only to make us alive, but to sit together with Christ and to sit in heavenly places with Christ for all eternity. We will be the workmanship and the the prize of Christ for all eternity as we worship and glorify him for being our Savior for all eternity. Revelation chapter 5 says that for all eternity we will see Jesus as a lamb given to the slaughter. And many scholars have then proposed the fact that will he retain the scars endured and and, and, uh, given to him during the crucifixion process for all eternity? Something to truly consider. As Warren Worsby wrote again, he says, In His mercy, that is God's mercy, He does not give us what we do deserve, and in His grace He gives us what we do not deserve. And all of this is made possible because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was at Calvary that God displayed His hatred for sin and His love for the sinner. Paul said it this way in Romans 5.8. He says, But God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, that famous verse, again, I don't think we can say it enough. In John 3.16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Notice verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
Paul again, solidifying the under, our understanding that the means by which we have received salvation is by the grace of God. And the way we've embraced that grace is by faith and faith alone. Now, I need to address a common mistake that we find in the interpretation of verse 8. When Paul writes, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. The gift there is not the faith itself. And the reason that we know that is because in the Greek grammar, the word gift is in what's called the neuter state. It's neither masculine or feminine. But the word faith is feminine, and therefore grammatically, the gift cannot be applied to the faith. It is not the faith that God gives us. That's a common mistake that many make. It is the complete process of salvation that is a gift of God. The grace that He has shown us. He didn't have to send Jesus. He didn't have to invite us to that salvation through Christ. And yet He did. Now I am not saying for a moment that salvation is a work of man in any way, shape, or form. But in this particular text, when we say that the faith itself is the gift, we are inaccurately interpreting that verse grammatically. It is misleading in the English translations. But it has been well established that the gift itself is the grace that God has shown us through Jesus. And therefore, we have no reason to boast in any way, shape, or form. No reason to boast at all because it is completely a work of God in our life. We would have no possibility of salvation if it wasn't for the grace demonstrated through God's sending of his only begotten son through the grace that Jesus showed us by committing himself to the will of the father all the way to the point of the cross and it's by the grace of God that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was accepted and conveyed and validated on the third day as he rose again But I want you to notice something, and we can't leave this text without embracing verse 10. Verse 10. I have read probably hundreds of discipleship manuals used for new believers. And in the vast majority of those discipleship manuals, they will always have the new believer memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And that is a good thing. But again, grammatically, those two verses are incomplete without the inclusion of verse 10. The Greek grammar is structured differently than the English grammar is. And when you have a Greek-constructed sentence... The sentence is connected by the manner in which it is written, not, through, not so much through punctuation, which doesn't really exist in the Greek. Verse 10 has to be included with verses 8 and 9. So if you've memorized 8 and 9, go ahead and memorize 10, and then you'll get a gold star on your chore chart for this week. Because the salvation is only the beginning. The salvation 
is only the beginning. Read all three verses together with me, if you will. Starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship there in the Greek is a word called pomia. It's, of course, where we get the word poem from. The salvation that you've experienced in Christ Jesus is the beginning of the authorship of that poem. It is the first few words of that poem. Roses are red, if you will. It's the beginning of that poem. It's the beginning of that poem. The poem is continuously written as we live and allow God to sanctify us by His Spirit through this world. Our story begins with our salvation. It doesn't just end there. That's where it begins. And God is writing it still. And when we are then caught up to meet the Lord in the air, we shall see the completion of that written poem in and through our lives. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Or the process of salvation that he wrote in Romans 8, 29 and 30. He says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among the brethren. Moreover, verse 30, here is the work of salvation. He predestined us, he called us, and he who he called, he also justified, and he who he justified, these he will also glorify. Meaning that you're a work in progress. And God is still writing that poem in and through your life. How will that poem read at the end of your life? What will the takeaway be as people read the poem of your life at the end of your life? But we can be confident of this very thing in Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is an incredible promise for each one of us here today. Let me leave you with a question that Warren Worsby left me with this week in his commentary. He asked this question of all of us here today. He says, are you wearing the grave clothes or the grace clothes? Are you enjoying the liberty you have in Christ? Are you still bound by the habits of the old life in the graveyard of sin. As a Christian, you have been raised and seated on the throne. Practice your position in Christ. He has worked for you. Now let him work in you and through you for his glory and his pleasure, that he might give you an exciting, creative life to the glory of God. So the question I leave you with, as a new believer in Jesus Christ, as a uh, new creation in Jesus Christ, are you still wearing the grave clothes? Or have you put on the grace clothes that God has given you through Jesus?